1: It's been a heavy couple of weeks in this town, so we thought we'd bring you a few days of some light springy content. Tis the season, right? Today, it's a rebroadcast of an episode we first aired last July. One of my favorite aspects of living in Nashville and Middle Tennessee is the sheer variety of nature in our region, and the birds are no exception. Until I moved here, I hadn't seen a cardinal up close in years. Out near my place in East Nashville, oh, are they around. And here, along the creek, outside our building in metro center, families of ducks and geese make a comfortable home. Later this hour, we'll learn how to identify our native and migratory birds. But first, it's time to get curious with WPLN's Curious Nashville. In one yard, there's a large bonsai tree. Now, I'm no arborist, but I do know that bonsai trees are not native to this part of the world. So, how did it get there? Our friends at Curious Nashville are always up for this kind of challenge. Our old pal and current This Is Nashville groupie, Damon Mitchell, former reporter here at WPLN, joined us last year to talk about this story. How's it going, Khalil? I'm doing well, man. Good to see you. You too. So how'd you find this story? Um, So a
2: resident in North Nashville, Lewis Cannon, who owns a home in the neighborhood, wrote into our Curious Nashville project. Um, And actually, by the time we got around to uh, like responding to her. She had already done like her own investigating hmm. about the tree and where it came from. Um, so basically she was kind of the the character and kind of the expert in the story. Um, so I want to say it was May, I went to her home and we just uh, I spoke with her and her neighbor uh, and we kind of got into the history of everything.
1: Now Charlie Fenton is Liz's neighbor. He's who tipped her off to how that tree was special. Let's hear from him.
2: My vantage point
3: is
1: my front door. As I step out, I have the opportunity to see this tree in full shape with
3: the exact same line of the roof of the house. Because it's that way. (laughs) It just to me grabs me. It's like I'm somewhere in the mountains observing a cabin or something.
1: Talk about having an eagle eye. Liz Cannon joins us now. Liz, Welcome to This is Nashville. Tell me, what did you think when you first saw your tree?
4: <laughs> well, it, I didn't really think much of it. It's kind of overgrown right now um, until Charlie. I think it was the first day I met him back in 2018. He told me how much he loves this tree. And so I did I took a look at it and it, it is exotic looking. It's bending and it's like it's purposely been formed this way. It's not. I don't, it doesn't look natural. And I know there is techniques to get this done, but it it, it really sticks out in North Nashville or, I mean, anywhere. You're not just going to see this kind of tree everywhere. Um, so that was my initial interest and, and Charlie tipped me off.
1: So you have this special yet odd looking tree in your backyard. What did you do next?
4: So I didn't think much of it. That was in 2018. And then the tornado happened. The tornado went right down our street on un- Delk. Um, Charlie and I got away unscathed. But after the it all settled, my husband and I were driving around looking at the damage, and, and I started seeing what Charlie was talking about. There's other trees like this, very small bushes, um, but the same type of um, bonsai-looking aspect to them. And so that's when I rode into Curious Nashville, and I guess that's when it took the hiatus. And then right after that is when COVID came. And um, I'm a nurse at Centennial, and um, you got to have things that pass the time when you're not at work. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not even at the bedside taking care of the sick patients. I'm more of a supportive palliative um, care coordinator. So I took that as kind of my outlet to research. I would get home, and I would read, and I would look at old maps from the 1800s, trying to figure out, like, how did this get here? What was Charlie talking about when he said crazy people must have come to North Nashville and planted these? So really the tornado and the pandemic are what ignited this whole process.
1: Okay. So what did you find when you did your research?
4: Not a lot at first. And I think that's probably what helped me go further. Um, what, what, What got me to an answer is I looked at an old map because the city kind of stopped at 26th Avenue and then it had Sperry went over the Cumberland river into the Bordeaux area. And so I looked at the last address that would have been there. And I just looked at newspapers.com or ancestry, like old censuses. And sure enough, the first thing that popped up was an ad for ES Pinker exotic shrubs and evergreen trees, big nursery. Um, I wish I could like go back to when that moment when I saw it because I was like, "Oh my gosh, there is some truth to this," and and that was here right on our property.
1: Okay, so that's very very thorough, Liz. I'm impressed.
4: Well, I had a lot of time. Had a lot of time.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, we all did, but you made good use of it. So, you know, Damon, who is Es Pinkard? What did he do? Um, so I'll kind of start before he got to
2: Nashville. Um, he was born in Rutherford County, kind of on a small, uh a farm south of Murfreesboro. Um, And he had, he was a fireman for a couple of years and also a railroad engineer. Um, He ended up moving to Nashville because he got a job as kind of the superintendent of the Jewish cemetery in North Nashville. Um, So it was there where he started his first greenhouse. Um, And from there, like he, this guy went to like starting a greenhouse as a superintendent at a cemetery. and I want to say he had, I believe it's seven. He had seven, ended up having seven total. He mm. also had a store on West End. Um, and he actually shipped some of his like plants uh, around the world. And he was kind of famously known for, we have like the evergreens in the Tennessee mountains. Um, the soil is different there. So he was known to be able to kind of plant those trees in Davidson County and and grow them. Um and then he was also uh, an interesting thing I found out was that I want to say it was 1940. He was hired as the city's first landscaper of this uh, municipal airport.
1: Wow. Wow. That man has done a lot. So you went out to see this tree, correct? Yes. Describe it for us.
2: Uh, as Liz said, it very bendy. Um, it's not a huge, huge tree, but it is pretty tall. And I mean, I'm not that tall, so it's, it's tall for me. Okay. Um, the brand, the leaves look like kind of tree branches. And when I was, um, talking to Tony Gonzalez, who kind of has the Curious Nashville project, I was like, they look like green icicles, almost. Um, and it's just kind of like a weird shaped tree and it kind of goes in different directions as far as the tree trunk. Um, and then it's also just like a super green, like really green tree.
1: So it's pretty healthy.
2: Yes, it looks like it.
1: Very impressive. You know, later this hour, we're talking about some of the birds in our region. Liz, have any birds made the bonsai in your yard their home this summer?
4: Not this summer, but in the winter, um, the the tree is filled with like mockingbirds and the they train their babies to jump off of the tree. It's very fun to watch, especially when it snows because they're the the brush up there is just full tree of birds.
1: That's awesome. Now your neighbors have some of these trees. You said before that you were able to see when you and your husband went driving around the neighborhood after the tornado. Have you spoken to them? What do they think about the bonsai trees in their yards?
4: So I did originally have a plan to do that. And then COVID came and I didn't, want to scare people knocking on their doors. Um, so I haven't, I have noticed that someone did cut down their tree. That was really sad. Um, but no, I, 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 I think that would help us maybe get some answers. Um, of if they know where their tree came from.
1: Okay. So what was the most exciting thing you found when looking into this?
4: The most exciting thing is probably not about the tree. So, and the, I'm not super religious, but this is a really cool aspect of the whole story. A few um, when Damon reached out to me Mm -hmm. um, that they were going to do my question, I just I went back and kind of reviewed everything I had found over the years with Mr. Pinkert and I looked up the address where he lived. Um, Well, let me backtrack. I had been going over all my data and all my information. And around that time, I had found a house for sale down the street that was like a total fixer upper um, back like a 1900s house that needed a lot of work. I couldn't afford it. But I came to work showing all my coworkers because I love anything old and historical. So then I got the call from Damon. I go back and research all of my stuff. And I, I wanted to remember where Mr. Pinkert lived, which is just down the street from me. And he owned the house that I was showing off the day before to my coworkers. And I ju- it just kind of put a nice little bow on the end, um, like a small world, even back over 100 years ago. Um, that Mr. Pinkert kind of is still on people's minds. And um, maybe he has family around that would hear the story, but it was a really fun um, project just to do over the last few years.
1: That was North Nashville resident Liz Cannon. She was joined by now former WPLN reporter and current friend of the show, Damon Mitchell. They joined us last summer to answer a Curious Nashville question. If you have a question for Curious Nashville, head to WPLN.org. After the break, we're talking all things birds. We'll start with the journey to find the Purple Martins. Where did they go after the trees they roosted in outside of the symphony were taken down? We'll be right back. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil e. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Purple martins. Have you heard of them? If not, you may have seen them. They're large, beautiful birds with glossy royal blue and black feathers. They migrate through our region, arriving right around this time each year spending a few good months with us in the spring and summer. A few years ago, tens of thousands of them began roosting in the trees outside of Nashville Symphony's downtown concert hall. The roosting itself is a sight to see. They swirl around like a tornado as they land in for the night. And like a tornado, their roosting did cause some damage. Last spring, the symphony had to uproot the damaged trees, which meant the Purple Martins had to find a new resting place. So where did they go? Our former producer, Tasha A. F. Lemley, went searching last summer at sunset with bird biologist Melinda Welton to find out.
5: It's a bit like chaotic smoke. Then they get lower and lower until they start going into the trees, but hopefully tonight we'll see them at a great distance in the sky before they start coming into the trees.
0: That's really exciting. It is. Yeah. It can be a real spectacle, which I'm sure you know if you love the symphony.
5: Yeah, Nashville has hosted a very large purple martin roost for um, well over
0: 10 years. Melinda's one of a handful of locals keeping tabs as the purple martins look for their next roost.
5: And we're gonna watch to make sure that what's been done is enough to encourage the birds to find another place to roost
0: before they go to the upper Amazon. She says one of those new roosts is out near the Jefferson Street Bridge. That's where we're waiting for them to land for the evening.
5: Most of the birds start coming in about 8.20, and then uh, they're mostly all in the roost by 8.40 when it's getting dark.
0: 8.16, any minute now. We're hoping to see them come in from afar, like a chaotic cloud. (laughs) 8.20 comes and goes. No birds. Melinda stares into her binoculars. She's looking in all directions. I have no idea what may have happened. Melinda strains to hear or see any birds at all in the area. she finally sees a few. I think those,
5: those are Martins. Silent. How curious. Well, we're witnessing something that has not been observed
0: in Nashville before. Well, the sun is set. We're at 8.40. They should be settled into bed for the night. It looks to be a bust, if not a melancholy mystery. Before we go, I suggest listening under the trees just to hear if anyone may have slipped in under our watch. And right as we step under the canopy, in come hundreds of martins. And that's
5: the spectacle you were hoping to see. You see, they fly over the trees, they'll swoop around, and then
0: they'll settle into the trees. Over the next 20 minutes, birds keep coming in sometimes a couple dozen at a time, sometimes a couple hundred, all in the dark. It's not wise to be so awestruck that I stare up with my mouth open. (laughs) I should probably be very excited with a closed mouth. All the roosts that I've watched
5: in Nashville, that was the most curious display I've seen.
1: When we first aired this episode last July, we asked listeners to keep an eye out for the Purple Martins, and we'd love to keep that alive as they return to our region this spring. Let us know if you spot their new home. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. If you can't tell already, today's read broadcast is all about birds, something our first guest wasn't always interested in. Asia Tanks, welcome to This Is Nashville.
6: Hi, thank you for having me.
1: Thanks for being with us. So you are a student at TSU. What are you studying?
6: I study Pre-Veterinarian with a minor in Spanish.
1: I understand that you don't really care about birds. At least you didn't care about birds until you started an internship at Warner Parks. Tell us about that.
6: That is correct. Um, my main focus was really just to be with large animals, large, large cattle. That was my goal. Um, I was lucky enough to join the Dean Scholars Program at TSU that was offered and I had the opportunity to be an intern with Warner Parks Nature Center um, down in Nashville, Tennessee. And it was my first time and I got to work with the wonderful Miss Laura, (laughs) who was a very much bird expert. And she really opened my eyes to learning new things about birds.
1: So what was it like?
6: It was something I wasn't expecting um, I got to be really hands-on with nature I got to explore more than what you would just if you just stepped outside your door um, I got to see how the birds were banded I got to be able to even start my project which was the hermit thrush, um, and see how they migrated throughout the winter
1: Our next guest oversees that internship and is the bird research coordinator at Friends of Warner Park. Laura Cook, welcome to This is Nashville.
7: Thanks for having me.
1: So, Laura, how does it feel to have converted someone like Asia into a bird lover? I mean, did she take to it like a duck to water?
7: (laughs) She did. Um, You know, we have had um, we've had several years where we've had interns. This was our first semester of having students from TSU And I will say nothing pleases me more than um, sort of opening people's eyes and ears to what's around them and having them be able to notice um, these amazing creatures that are all around us and be able to appreciate them. And Asia was fabulous. She was very dedicated. Um, She completed her project and she was she was just a joy to have with us.
1: So when did your love with birds begin?
7: (laughs) I'm going to, I'm going to blame that on my parents. (laughs) 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 Um, you know, my, um, both my mom and dad, I would say are, um, amateur naturalists on their own of just being, um, being just very observant, um, people and really enjoying being out in nature and asking lots of questions about why things happen and what they could be. And I think that, they instilled that in um, in me at a very young age, including looking at birds and trying to identify birds.
1: Mm-hmm. About how many birds migrate through Middle Tennessee each year?
7: Oh, oh, uh, hundreds. I mean, it, for species wise, um, you know, dozens and dozens of birds, uh, species migrate through here, especially, um, you know, the ones that at Warner Park that we really focus on at our our bird banding station is we're really interested in a lot of the warbler species that breed further north and then um, pass through uh, Middle Tennessee on their way to Central and South America. Um, but the numbers wise, in millions of birds um, in the spring and the fall are migrating through and most of those are migrating through at night. And so you don't even realize until you wake up the next day and suddenly a bird that you hadn't seen since the springtime um, is suddenly there in your backyard.
1: Now, describe the warblers for us.
7: So warblers, it's just a it's a group of birds. They tend to be um, pretty small, small birds. Um, I'm trying to think like most people are probably familiar with a um, a Carolina chickadee or Mm -hmm. a Carolina so they're about that size, but um, but they are a bird that a group of birds that tend to be very vocal. They tend to have very distinct vocalizations. Um, and we do have warbler species that um, that migrate um, up to up to Tennessee and breed here. But we do, a lot of the warbler species continue on their migration further north to breed and then come back through in
1: the fall. So how does the practice of banding and tracking birds work?
7: That's a great question. So this is bird banding has been ongoing for over um, you know hundreds of years. Um, and what it is, is that you we licensed uh, federally and state licensed banders capture birds, um, they take measurements, morphological measurements on them, identify the bird, and then depending on the species, they put a certain size, what's called a band, and it almost looks like a bracelet that goes on their leg, and it has a, an, a unique uh, number on that. Um, usually for our songbirds it's usually a nine digit number so if anyone captures that bird again they can report that number to the bird banding laboratory which is part of usgs and then the researcher learns where that bird was was found and the person who found the bird can also learn about where the bird was banded um, and a little bit more information about the bird maybe how old it was mm-hmm. uh, what gender it was and that that the 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 reason for doing that is um, it helps us learn about bird movement It helps us learn about um, how old birds can live to be. And it helps us um, better understand populations of birds and how their populations are doing. Are they increasing? Are they declining?
1: Mm -hmm. Now, Asia, you mentioned that you worked with the hermit thrush for your internship. What did you learn about them?
6: I didn't actually get to learn about them until March um, when I finally decided to do the project. Uh, We had a sit down with all the interns and Ms. Laura brought the idea to have um, to do a project on the CTT transmitters to locate some hermit thrushes that were located in the park.
1: That's awesome. Now, Laura, I'm curious as to like how far some of the birds in our region migrate what is the longest distance of migration that you've come across in your work?
7: Well, for for our for our birds specifically that we have that we have banded, or as Asia mentioned, with the CTT, we're starting to put radio transmitters on some birds. So the best, the the longest one that we've had so far is with a Swainson's thrush, which is a relative of the hermit thrush that Asia mentioned, and that bird um, is a bird that. Bred probably up in uh, northern U.S., southern Canada, came down to Warner Parks and actually spent about um, uh, ten days at Warner Parks, refueling, building up its fat reserve, getting healthy again to be able to make its journey further south for the winter. And it was detected um, by a receiver station um, with the from the radio transmitter over flying over Costa Rica. Um, probably on its way down to um, Colombia and and Northern South America. So for us, the best sort of um, indication that we've had of of birds moving through. But yeah, the, um, as Melinda mentioned in the the earlier segment, purple martins are a bird that will um, migrate all the way down to the Amazon. Um, And we have other birds um, that, that a lot of the warbler species that are that are down in uh, Central and South America and then go all the way up to Northern Canada.
1: I am impressed. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville and I'm your host, Khalil Echolona. We're talking about the birds that migrate through our region each year. Do you need help identifying a bird you've spotted? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Now, our next guest is a former Tennessee park ranger who got low-key famous on TikTok over the past couple years. And this clip may help you understand why. Hey. It's Ranger Keith. I'm
8: out birding this morning and I thought you could probably use a minute to just be present. We're just gonna sit, listen, and let the world be whatever it is for just a minute. And if you don't know what your bird calls are, that's okay. I'll just tell you what they are as we go. Here we go. chickadee dee dee It's a Carolina chickadee. Frrr-reep. Northern Peruga. Peep, 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 peep. Downywood woodpecker. Here, 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 here we are, yellow-throated warbler. All
1: right, I'll see you later. Oh, man, I could feel that breath and peace. Ranger Keith Paluso, pleasure to have you with us. So tell me, how did you get into this? uh how did i get into uh, birding or just
8: uh posting on stuff like that on tiktok both oh well i I started birding in college i think my whole life i wanted to be a biologist but i was mostly interested in reptiles and amphibians and uh so in college i did a reptile and amphibian survey of the real foot lake area and um I was not that interested in birds, but that's a great birding location. But I was great friends with the ornithology professor. Just absolutely idolized this man at UT Martin. He called me up one day. I lived at the park at the time and he was like, Hey Keith, would you, uh, there's a weird bird in your area. Would you want to go check it out with me? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And it's middle of winter in West Tennessee, like top Northwest corner of West Tennessee near real foot. And so it's just soybean fields and a gray sky, you know, (laughs) it looks over there Mm -hmm. and, uh, he took me out there in the biology department truck, and uh, in just a few minutes, we were standing in the middle of the soybean field, and there was this rough-legged hawk over my head. Which is, they come down into Tennessee in the winter sometimes, but really only when food is not that available. It's not, it's not very easy to find them in the winter. And uh, he explained to me what it was. It's like this is a rough-legged hawk. It's in its juvenile year, uh, and it's come all the way down here. And it just blew my mind. I'm from a, I'm from Munford, Tennessee. It's a town of like three thousand people, and so. I was looking at this bird that I just knew in its juvenile year, it had been farther than I would probably ever go in my whole life. And, okay. uh, it just blew me, blew my mind. I was, I was instantly hooked. Um, and I've been doing that ever since. Um, but I, I was a Tennessee state park ranger for a long time. Um, and then super weird story, but in 2018, I ended up on, I, I'd quit playing music for forever and, uh, ended up on a TV show called the voice, um, and then went on tour as a musician after that. But in the pandemic, whenever tours got canceled, I uh, ultimately decided to go back to being a park ranger for a while. And uh, that was a stressful year, you know, for everyone. And I started birding again pretty consistently during the, uh, during the winter of 2020. And just made it into sort of a meditative process and kind of on a whim when they posted a video where I was just sitting still and identifying bird calls uh, on
1: the video and it, it kind of took off um and it's been a blast how much time do you spend bird watching each day
8: um i i generally you know, i make content and and tour for a living now um but i gen- I have a park about a mile from my house uh, and I generally jump out there two or three times a week for maybe an hour or so just to see what what's there, just to check on things. Uh, I live about 20 minutes away from Shelby Forest State Park in Memphis, and uh, I usually jump out there about once a week. Uh, but then whenever I'm on tour, uh, I we will play the show in the evening and I'll get back to the hotel room at midnight and then I will be up at 4 wherever we are trying to find someplace to go because we'll, you know, we'll be all over the U S and in a few other countries too. So I try to,
1: to jump out there as much as I can. So if one wants to become a bird caller, you know, take them under your wing. What advice would you give them? It is, uh, it is
8: easier now than it, than it's, it ever has been. There are a lot of apps and I usually teach with these apps too, where uh, are and they're also free, uh, where you, it's easy to, to start learning your bird calls. And a lot of people get really overwhelmed at first because there are a lot of different things coming through, a lot of different species coming through. And de- depending on the time of year, like in the spring, it'll be very busy if you're listening. Um, but I would suggest getting something like Merlin Bird ID from Cornell Lab of Ornithology. It's a free app and it has a sound ID function. You can kind of lean on that whenever you get stumped. Um, but really, once you learn about 10 or 12 of your resident birds that are near you year round, you can look up those lists on uh, Merlin Bird ID or allaboutbirds.org or ebird.org. There are several different resources. Uh, Once you learn the calls of about 10 different birds that are there year round and you're used to that kind of chorus, wherever you are, the things you don't know will stick out Mm -hmm. Um, and it'll be much easier to to kind of focus in on those things. And you may have to brush up on warblers whenever they come through in the spring, or you may hear something that uh, you haven't heard since last year and you're like, oh, I knew what that was last year, but I don't now. But um, the way I see it is is the same way with playing music or anything like that is uh, if you enjoy it, you're you're never going to hit a point in your life where you're like, well, I know all there is to know about this. I guess I'm done. So if you're going to do it for the rest of your life, then hopefully you have time to be patient.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, Laura Cook and Asia Tanks are still with us. You know, Asia, considering all the time you spent banding and tracking birds, have you become attuned to some of their songs?
6: I have. Um, I remember one day at the internship, mm-hmm. It's this cricket sound that you hear because I'm from a rural country in Alabama and it's like this cricket sound I always hear. And I always thought maybe it's just um, insects. Turns out it's a bird. And from that point on, I could just sit there on my back porch and I just listen to all these different sounds that the birds make. And I just come in tune with them and I say, oh, I remember what bird that is. And I remember hearing this bird at the Nature Center. And it's just it's just a blessing just to be able to have that opportunity to, like, understand and grasp the the power that these birds have with their voices.
1: You know, after the break, we'll be talking about conservation of our birds. Laura, what can we do to help our migratory friends when they come to visit the region?
7: Oh, that's such a good question. Um, there, so um, there's a lot of things you can do. One of the one of the things, just real uh, quick aside, one of the things that Asia learned from studying hermit thrushes that we found this winter is that a hermit thrush is a bird. It's related in the same um, same group as a bluebird or a robin, but they, they breed up in the Appalachians and uh, further north. They come down and they spend the winter here in middle Tennessee. And what Asia was able to help us learn is we put these transmitters on hermit thrushes. And what we found is they spent the entire winter with us and they actually spent time in a really small area. So they may for the entire winter just be within a one or two acre area. And so for me, that's the story of why your backyard and your neighborhood matters. And so things you can do to help these birds that have migrated all the way down here and are depending on your backyard potentially to be their wintering ground is to um, leave your leaves. Um, That's where all the good insects and grubs are hiding. Make sure you don't use herbicides, pesticides, Plant native plants and native trees wherever you can. And most importantly is to keep your cats indoors because after habitat loss and climate change, cats are the number one killers for um, for birds. Um, and then the last thing you can do, um, we probably anybody who has a bird feeder who has noticed have, has heard that awful thump. Um, against the window where a bird has hit your window, and that's because they don't see the glass; they just see the reflection. And so, there are a bunch of things you can do um, to to break up that reflection. Um, so, a couple of two great resources: one is uh, the American Bird Conservancy um, um, has some some great information. Um, uh, Three billion birds talks about the decline of birds and things you can do to help. And then locally, we have a coalition of concerned citizens that have formed a group called Bird Safe Nashville. You can go to birdsafenashville.org that talks about um, how to dim your lights. And um, um, we're going to be building that up for other things that you can do to help birds.
1: Okay. I'm going to do my best to keep my cats in the house. It's going to be a fight. That is Laura (laughs) Cook, bird research coordinator for Warner Parks. She was joined by her intern, TSU student Asia Tanks. Thanks to you both so much for being with us today. Ranger Keith will stay with us through the break. Thanks for tuning in for this rebroadcast. When we come back, we'll learn about the birds that live with us year-round and find out more about how to keep them alive and thriving in our region. We'll be right back. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil E. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Before the break, we were learning about migratory birds, our feathered friends just passing through. But what about the native birds that live here year-round? How can we identify them? And how do we keep them, um, Happy as larks. Now, let's welcome some of our guests. Carolyn Pendarvis is from the Greater Nashville Wildlife Rehabilitation Center, Walden's Puddle, and Roger Shields, Wild Turkey Program Coordinator for the State of Tennessee. Carolyn Roger, welcome to This is Nashville.
9: Thank you for having me. Thank you.
1: Really happy to to have you both. Now, Roger, wild turkeys, and we're not talking about the booze, right? Um, Right how many wild turkeys live here in middle Tennessee?
3: Well, we don't really have a a good number statewide even um, on turkeys. Uh, We, you know, if if we get pushed to it, you know, I'd I'd say there's probably over 300,000 statewide. Um, Certainly in the central part of the state is where the majority of them occur. We have higher densities here just because we have the Um, The best layout of habitat for what they need good mix of forested cover and and open areas So definitely in this part of the state is where you see the highest densities of wild turkeys
1: So what are some of your duties as wild turkey coordinator?
3: Well, I I struggle sometimes explaining what I do on a day-to-day basis, but um, as it says I'm a coordinator so um, I'm responsible for the statewide um, conservation of wild turkeys so it really precludes me being able to do a lot of on the ground, boots on the ground type work myself. So I really coordinate with all the folks, uh, the biologists and managers who are out in the field doing all that work, um, collecting information, collecting data, and then I kind of analyze it, summarize it, and then do a lot of reports and and uh, coordinate um, some research projects and different
1: things like that. You know, I'm glad you're not physically chasing them around because that would be exhausting. Um... <laughs> You know, yeah, it's tiring, it's hard to do. So you know, tell me, what's the current status of the wild turkey population in our region? Are they in good shape?
3: Well, we have a good healthy number of turkeys, but I think what is concerning to a lot of our landowners and, and hunters is that for about a decade, they've seen the number of birds kind of declining, and we don't really have a good um, handle on what is totally behind that. Certainly, reproduction not being what it used to be is the main driver, but why the reproduction has been falling off is, is still something that's um, kind of uh, still a question in our minds. And it's not just here in Tennessee or even central Tennessee. This is something that we're seeing as um, you know, biologists uh, and researchers pretty much across the eastern um, United States, certainly Midwest and southeast part of the country. And so it's kind of a broad scale thing and uh, a lot of research, a lot of information going um, being gathered to try and figure out exactly what's behind all of this.
1: So what should folks do if we see them in our neighborhoods?
3: Well, one thing that we have done as an agency going back into the 80s or even before the 1980s is every summer um, our staff, our biologists and, and officers in the field have done what we call a wild turkey summer survey. And just as they're going about doing their normal work, they would report observations of wild turkeys. And from that, we would get an estimate of the annual reproductive um, success and and just a kind of a general sense of the number of birds that were um, out there on the landscape. As this decline has kind of come on, uh, we've we've been wanting to have a little bit more uh, uh, data at a finer scale. So rather than just a statewide sense of what's going on across the state of Tennessee, we wanted to kind of zero in on regional differences. And we just don't have enough staff in our agency, even with our cooperators to really cover the whole state. So this year, this summer, we started asking the the public to also take part in the survey and and share their observations of wild turkeys. So um, if they see them, they can go to our website and there's a nice uh, link there to our reporting webpage. It's got all the information about how to do it. And if they're not real um, sure of what they're looking at, if it's a male or a female or the age of the pulse, there's, there's an ID um, tutorial there on the webpage, even a little quiz that you can test your knowledge with. Okay. And, uh, yeah.
1: Okay. So it's like report them, but don't feed them. Got it.
3: Yes, please.
1: <laughs> Carolyn, at Walden's Puddle, you rehabilitate all kinds of birds, including raptors or birds of prey, which have been my favorite since childhood. What is unique about the raptors in our region?
9: Uh, we have several varieties out here, I think, is is probably one of the most prominent things that sticks out. We, we get uh, everything from the red-shouldered hawks to uh, red-tailed hawks, American kestrels, uh, part of the falcon group. We get barred owls and barn owls, and we just really get a very, very wide variety just because of the type of topography we have here.
1: Now, how can we tell which birds of prey are near from their call?
9: Uh, well, I mean, again, as one of your previous callers said, I some of the apps that are out there now are are just absolutely phenomenal, uh, your Merlin Bird apps. Or the Cornell Labs happens to be one of my favorites. There's some great courses you can take with the Cornell Labs that has not only the picture ID but also a vocal identification, and they're near free uh, for the average person to be able to take. And it's just, just a good way for you to learn what's in your area.
1: Now Ranger Keith Paluso is still with us. Ranger Keith, have you had an encounter with a bird of prey?
8: Oh, several. Yeah. Well, I was a I was a Tennessee State Park Ranger for for several years, and uh, before that, you work as a park naturalist, like an intern. Um, and so, I've worked at some of the parks that have done either do wildlife rehabilitation, not to the same level as um, uh, as Walden's Puddle, but. Kind of where if someone brings finds something uh, injured, they bring it to us and we try to get it to uh, uh, a better wildlife rehab center. And so through the years, yeah, absolutely worked with uh, uh, almost every bird of prey that we've had in in that we have in the state of Tennessee. So everything from bald eagles to eastern screech owls. Um, yeah, almost
1: all of them. Yeah. <laughs> now you know we really want to talk about the conservation and how to protect. Some of our native birds. So, Carolyn, what are some of the biggest threats to our native birds
9: here? Well, I think habitat loss right now is is a huge factor. As Nashville grows and continues to construct, um, the habitat gets smaller and smaller, and these these animals are getting either pushed out or crowded into areas where things such as um, you know zoonotic viruses or funguses, things that affect them, um, helps decrease or is causing a decrease in the number of flocks that we're seeing. Uh, I think habitat loss will be the top of it. Also domesticated animals interfering, and I think that too ties with, with habitat loss as the habitat decreases and more and more people move in with the domestic animals. Uh, That is interfering and I think as one of your previous guests had said the cats Mm. and the dogs are the number one Factor when it comes to songbirds.
1: Now if I find an injured bird in my yard or street, what should I do?
9: Well, the first thing that you want to do is make sure that you get it up and out of the area so we tell them to get it secured uh, put into a box Uh, don't worry about whether you handle it with gloves or towels we want you to be delicate with the bird obviously because we don't want to cause any more trauma but there's an old wives tale that says that you know the mother doesn't want you handling their babies Um, that is a wives tale Uh, it there's very little truth in that so it's it's more important that you get the baby out, get it secured, get it confined, and then get it immediately, place that phone call to a wildlife rehabilitator so that we can provide information that is specific to that particular animal until you can get it to us.
1: So we can touch them. That old wife's tale is absolutely false.
9: Yeah, yeah, you can touch them. Mothers really don't mind that you touch their babies. And they're more concerned about getting their baby back. So, um, yeah, a lot of people think that that's an issue, that they don't want to touch them or that the mother won't take them back. And that's just not true. We've, we have we re-nested thousands and thousands of birds uh, just by someone scooping it up and putting it back into the nest.
1: All right. That is good to know. Now, Roger, there are a lot of hunters in Middle Tennessee. What are some of the restrictions we should be aware of when hunting wild turkeys?
3: Well, first of all, there's a only... Uh, particular times of the year when it's legal to hunt so our hunting season so you'd want to know when the hunting seasons are and we have two there's the spring season which is most popular and then the fall um, it's a little bit longer but less uh, it's a little bit more restrictive in the the ways that you can take the the wild turkey Um, there's also a bag limit so the each hunter is limited to how many turkeys they can take in each of those seasons and then the type of um, Weapon you can use to um, harvest a bird is limited primarily to like archery equipment and a shotgun, and both of those seasons. Um, Right now, the other thing is that, uh, or the main thing too, is during the hunting seasons, um, it's only males that are legal to be harvested. We mm-hmm. wanna protect those females. Again, we know that part of the problem right now with the declining numbers is the reproduction. And so we wanna protect those hens and let them continue to live and, and produce young. So they're totally protected. And uh, yeah, that's those are kind of the highlights of the restrictions.
1: How can we tell male and females apart?
3: Um, they, they are quite a bit different. Uh, the males have a lot more uh, coloration on the head, like reds and blues, uh, less feathering that goes up onto the head. Um, there's a little bit of a size difference, um, but probably the thing that most people would recognize: um, the center of the chest on a male. There's a um, they're actually modified feathers, but they look like kind of strands of hair almost, and we call it a beard. And so that beard will stick out from the chest of a a male. A few females have a a beard as well. And those actually are legal to harvest too, because they are kind of confusing for hunters to to tell apart from a from a male. But um, usually, that's the main thing. If you can get them up close, or you know, see them up close, males also will have a little spur, kind of like um, a chicken has, uh, on the kind of the lower part of their leg that sticks off to the back. So you, those are the main differences between the
1: males and the females. Okay, that's good to know. Now, Roger, turkeys can make quite a few sounds other than the gobble we're so familiar with before we go i want to play a few clips and see if you can translate what they're saying are you ready oh boy you're putting me on a test yes sir live live radio that's how we do it here we go first one what's this call
3: well that's um kind of a traditional or the, the the main call the yelp that the females will make, and depending on kind of the intensity and the, uh, the speed of that call can indicate, you know, it could be an assembly call where it's a hen trying to gather up her, her young, maybe got scattered by something, and she's coming back in there and trying to gather them up. It could be a female that's expressing, you know, in the springtime when they're breeding and mating um, excitement from the displaying or the calling of a gobbler, something like that. So, but that, the main call that you're hearing is what we call a yelp.
1: Okay. Okay. Here's clip number two. Okay. That one got a little intense at the end. What did, what did that mean? So that's what they call a kiki run.
3: Those are made by young birds. Um, So typically young of the year, like in the fall or something. And that would happen if, again, they got split up from the rest of the flock. That's kind of a little bit of a distress call or like, hey, where is everybody? And it's just trying. And that's just because they're young birds. They don't make that quite uh, yelp sound that the older birds will make. And then right at the end of the clip, you heard a bird gobble. So um, you'll hear that sometimes, too, in the spring, that kiki. Key key, but um, yeah, that was a gobble in the back of it. The-
1: okay, here's the third clip. All right, so what does that call tell us? So that's what they call a cluck,
3: and that's just a sound of contentment. Um, as birds are moving around feeding and in their flock, it's just uh, there's a lot of communication that goes on between individual birds back and forth. And it's just, uh, you know, it's just their sound of contentment that everything is good and we're just having a great day. and. Um, yeah, so that's that's what you hear when you when you get up real close to it, like if you're sitting in a blind or something, and a birds came by feeding, that's what you'd hear. It's pretty soft, so it doesn't carry very
1: far. Okay, that is wonderful. That is Master Turkey Translator Roger Shields, Wild Turkey Program Coordinator for the State of Tennessee. He was joined by Carolyn Pendarvis of Walden's Puddle. Thank you all for being with us today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in for this rebroadcast. Tomorrow, we'll keep the theme going with a new episode all about the Cherry Blossom Festival this weekend. Tune in. This is Nashville as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode was produced by Tasha A.F. Limley last July. Our senior producer is Steve Harouche. Our digital lead is Anna Gygos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Jackie Byram. Justin Hiltner and Graham Gerderman. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and let us know what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekaluna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody, and be good to each other.